Hello, everybody. I'm uh, Derek Arden. Welcome to Monday Night Live. Two tips before we get uh, started from me that have come out this week. Number one, feedback or feed forward. As you know, I like the uh, word feed forward, a big fan of it. But to elicit feedback, Marshall Goldsmith, one of the top coaches in the world, says there's only one question you should ask people about yourself. How can I get even better? What can I do to get even better? That is the only question. And the second point is reframing. Such an important subject. Tracy Hooper talked to us about it uh, last week. And I was thinking about reframing um, the word negotiate, because as soon as you work, use the word negotiate in the UK, people go defensive, think it's going to be aggressive, think you're going to win more than them, rather than just saying, let's discuss how we can get a win-win. And then perhaps use a yes tag question like, we do want a win-win here, don't we, with the yes tag on the end. Anyway, back to the uh, my main guest tonight, uh, Kian Duggan. Beer... Uh, MSC. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, Kian, and I'm going to read it out because uh, Kian is a serial entrepreneur working at the intersection of technology, business, and society. He's a guest lecturer at uh, University of Surrey and a blockchain investor, founder and director at Carbon Intelligence, a UK-based global data-driven carbon consultancy which exists to enable businesses in a global zero carbon. <laughs> economy. And I remember when I heard uh, Kieran speak first, I realised that his first customer that he negotiated was, was with was the first one that really woke me up, and that was Tesco's. Kieran, welcome to Monday Night Live. Thank you so much for joining us. Tell us a bit about carbon intelligence and what sparked that off? What got you going? Sure. Um, first of all, thank you very much for, for inviting me along, Derek. It was uh, lovely to meet you at the, the best uh, morning meeting in Guildford. Um, when I set up the business, when I set up Carbon Intelligence, Carbon Credentials, as it was back then, we renamed Carbon Intelligence a couple of years ago. Um, I, I tended best in Guildford for probably about four or five years, and it was really, really helpful in those early days. Because um, when I set it up, it was just based in my spare bedroom helping kind of medium-sized businesses to, to understand that they could, you know, be more efficient in the energy, electricity and gas that they were using in their buildings. Um, fast forward to now, and we've got about 160 people, mostly based out of our, our offices here on Regent Street, where I am right now. Uh, and we've got a collection of um, strategists, engagement people, people with very deep carbon expertise, very, very detailed data people. Um, we've got a few teams building various bits of technology um, and, and, and a collection of people who are, are helping with the, the governance of, of kind of multi-decade long net zero programs for our clients who, as you mentioned, you know, include the likes of Tesco's. Um, we, we tend to work with large, global, complex companies who, who have got, you know, thousands, tens of thousands of employees around the globe tend to have you know tens hundreds even thousands of locations um tend to have quite complex carbon problems to solve um and and, and for for the last nearly 15 years now we, we've been helping them to understand i suppose simplistically three answers to three questions where am i now where am i trying to go 
I mean, what, what's the goal? What, where, where's the end point? And am I on track to get there? there? There are probably the three fundamental questions that uh, in one way, shape or form, we are asked to answer on behalf of our clients. And, and that's what we've been doing for, for quite a few years. And uh, how important do they see it, bearing in mind Ukraine? Has the world changed a bit uh, on, their, on the carbon goals? That's the first question. And the second question is clearly different countries see it in different ways. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. Different countries have, I mean, over the 15 years that, that we've been doing this, um, different countries have at different stages had it at more or, or, or less important. Um, you know, the UK was one of the first countries to, to put in a, a, a proper uh, reporting framework, the 2008 Climate Change Act um, that came in. That, that was a kind of a global first for a country to put that into pr practice. And that that really helped us, that, that kick-started our business to, to be dealing with larger global uh, businesses, because all of a sudden, 2,000 entities here in the UK had to do an annual report to show how much carbon they were using in their day-to-day -day operations. Um, it, it has kind of got more and less important over the years, you know, so we have seen a few cycles now at this stage. We've seen large organisations talk about it a lot and employ a lot of internal people and build up internal teams. Uh, and then, so that was probably maybe 10 years ago, some of the forward thinking companies were doing that. Uh, mm -hmm. About six or seven years ago, then the, it kind of came off the boil. A lot of those internal teams were disbanded. Um, we were brought in, we, people kind of outsourced the problem to companies like ours, which, which was great. Um, and then in the more recent past, you know, we were a bit concerned when, when Corona happened and the lockdown happened that, a lot of our multi-year programs might be stopped, but actually the reverse happened. It seemed like as, as companies were moving into a remote working and, and kind of dealing with different things, the climate change sustainability carbon agenda came further up the, in the, the minds of the C-suite. So CEOs and CFOs um, in particular and chief marketing officers were beginning to look at this a lot more seriously. We have seen for, for certain businesses that are particularly impacted by supply chain challenges with the Ukraine and with other general global supply chain challenges. Um, some of those in the more recent past have put a little bit of a pause on their activities in sustainability net zero, but it's quite sector specific and, and it's, it is overshadowed, I would say, by the, the much larger tsunami of activity that's happening across all sectors. I think particularly in the financial sector. So the investors, financial services sector um, have really been doubling down on, on their activity, the narrative, the, the, the desire to know where they are, where they're trying to go and what, what should they be doing and are they on track to get there? And do they do it? Say a multinational, I don't know, BP or someone like yeah. that's probably a bad example on carbon, isn't it? But uh, do they have the same philosophy right across the globe? Or um, if, if they're operating in um, third world countries, uh, do they have a different um, philosophy? So, so there, there's often an attempt at a central philosophy, um, but the practical application of that philosophy, it, it will change from region to region, even within, even within the UK, we found, and definitely changes depending on the, on the country, because, you know, different local countries will have different uh, levels of ESG mandated reporting um, or, or kind of voluntary reporting down at a, a, a local 
or at a country or a local level. Um, so there are overarching and global standards, but still a lot of the mandatory reporting happens at a country level or dictated by a, a multinational themselves. But what we found, I mean, we, we gather data globally for, in fact, we, we, we have BP as a client as it happens, you know, but, you know, companies like, you know, British Telecom, BT or Aviva, you know, who've got, you know, presence in, in many dozens of countries globally. And, and we have seen over the years a very different approach to data gathering, to reporting, to taking action in different countries. Again, particularly, you know, developing countries where, you know, the, the frameworks perhaps don't exist to, to gather data robustly, you know, and so there are a lot more estimates um, and a lot more assumptions have to be made than in, you know, the UK, Europe, US, uh, etc. Ken, for the benefit of everybody, what's ESG? Uh, sorry, big pardon, environmental social governance. So, I mean, there are so many different ways that uh, this, this same, I suppose, the, the topic of carbon sustainability, ESG, environmental social governance, CSR was one that was around and still is there, corporate social responsibility. It's all basically looking at the same thing, which is, you know, how can we do more with less? You know, how can we use our resources, our, our capital, better as a as a society as a country as a, a as a company you know as a as a division or a branch within a company you know it, it's all looking fundamentally at the same thing through slightly different lenses but the same general thing environmental social governance though to answer your specific question now one of these one of the slides you sent me which we've uh, seems to have not been able to show is, yeah. is this one. Oh, there you go yeah. which is from simon sinek's book start with why you put the book on there but yeah, yeah. Uh, you say you show a great circle what how and why what what's that slide all about yeah well so i'm, I'm a big fan of of simon sinek and um you know i, I think his, his approach of starting with why and, and this is what we'll often do when we you know when a new client now comes to us and says we need some help we need to be doing something about this carbon stuff you know um they might be a little bit more eloquent than that but fundamentally that's what that's what they're asking us you know they they want some help with their environmental social governance with their carbon story you know for, for a variety of reasons and and we'll always start with asking why you know why now why why is this important for you um and, and the answers we get back, I mean, they broadly fit into to three buckets at the moment. And, and this is different to how the question was answered even a few years ago. But now the why is often because our staff are asking us to do something more, you know, so attraction and retention of staff is often a, a key reason. Um, you know, they might mention, you know, that they're getting requests from customers, you know, so their own customers, their own clients, whether it be B2B or B2C. Um, they'll be getting sharper questions about, you know, again, what are they doing and, and you know, are, are they on track? Um, and for any organization that requires investment or funding for their, their ongoing operations or for expansion, um, the, the requirement from investors, you know, so take commercial real estate, for example, that was one of the first sectors we saw a few years ago. The why for the commercial real estate funds became very clear a few years ago that if they didn't have a, a plan and if they weren't working towards a plan and communicating something around carbon, environmental, social governance, they were less likely to be able to raise their next round of tens or hundreds of millions of pounds to buy the next sets of buildings. 
Um, so the why is really critical because until we, and, and, and you know, we carbon intelligence, we are, you know, a, a bunch of engineers, strategists, um, you know, uh, engagement people, we, we can help companies to, to understand what they need to do. But for us to do our job, we need to understand why they are trying to do that. Mm. Um, so it's, it's, it's quite important, you know, to, to start with why we find, because then the what and the how kind of tend to, to, to follow much more sensibly. Sure. Now you're a serial entrepreneur. How did you build mm. this company up to such 155 people? Sounds amazing. Totally outside my comfort zone, but you must be paying these guys a lot of money, actually. How did you do that? Yeah. How did you fund it? <laughs> well, uh, it was all, it's all been funded um, bootstrapped, you might say, um, you know, so um, when I set up the business, you know, I'd, I'd set up a couple of previous ones. I had a, a rapid growth um, software business in the dot-com era, um, which, which I did get some venture capital, private equity funding into and some match funding from Irish government and various things. Um, I then had a, a property-based business and the funding for, for that came from, you know, mortgages and bank lending. So, you know, on, on the back of the property and the equity in, in, in properties we were developing. Um, so that was kind of a slightly different uh, funding model. Um, but uh, I set up this one just as 2007, 2008 had hit and, uh, and our property business, and it was myself and my wife were running that one, and our property business got completely hammered um, in the combination of the, the European uh, property market hit plus, plus the UK. Um, so, so we didn't have any capital ourselves to invest, and so it, it was basically just hand to mouth um, when I set up Carbon Credentials. You know, we decided, and I brought in a, a wonderful chap, Richard Green, uh, as my business partner and we, we just kind of agreed he also had, had set up various businesses before um, and we kind of agreed somewhat jokingly that you know we had both had great businesses with great exit plans historically uh, and that you know this time we would just build a sensible business which was profitable on a quarterly basis that was delivering success to our clients just really really simple and we wouldn't worry about you know grand exit plans and how we were going to make billions etc cetera, etc cetera, you know um you know because we both had a lot of hubris in, in our previous businesses um so uh so we literally just built it on the back of sensible business practice um one of the things i did do in the very early days was i demanded from my clients that they pay me up front before we started that i would invoice right at the outset and, and we had a lot of resistance from clients and, and we just kind of went, no, we, we are not going to like wait until we finish delivering and then invoice you and then have a, you know, 60, 90, 100 day wait. We said, we said no, we're, we're just not going to do that. So we're good at what we do. And if you want to work with us, these are the terms. And we managed to get those terms agreed by some of the biggest organizations, you know, in, in the UK, which, you know, was, was both surprising. But I think for, for anyone who's starting out, you know, if you can self-fund growth you know if, if scaling if, if your cash flow because as we all know i mean cash flow is what kills most small businesses in the growth phase and and if you can manage to continue to have reasonable cash flow whilst growing and while scaling it makes life so much easier and, and that's what we managed to do um and the other thing i did was uh, as as we grew you know from just me to two to five to ten to twenty etc you know um I, I was always on the lookout for who could I bring into the business to strengthen the, the governance of the business because, you know, I was under no illusions 
that I had all the answers. You know, I was, I'd set up a few businesses before. Um, the biggest of those went to a, a total headcount of about 50. Um, in fact, they both went to a headcount of about 50. Um, so, so it became clear after the first couple of years that this had a potential to be much bigger than that, than either of those. Um, so I knew I would need much better people than me around the, the, the table, around the, um, around the boardroom table. So, so we've, we've been really blessed and lucky. And, you know, it's a, it's, it's a fun business to be involved in for, for other kind of, you know, high net worth, you know, successful individuals to have something that's doing good in their portfolio. You know, so it's fantastic. I I must congratulate you on that. One of the things we've been talking about on the Monday Night Live is is cash is king. And I was curious how you did that. But by funding it up front, you must be a fantastic negotiator and influencer to be able to get them to uh, pay you up front and sort all those working capital issues. A few bankers watching this. So um, all that working capital out and avoid over trading all these jargon words that are used in uh, in banking and uh, and to spot the talent as well to uh, grow the talent and persuade them to come into um a seed corn business fantastic well it was um it was quite fun you know i mean the uh i think you know desperation is the the mother of invention or necessity or whatever whichever one of those it is you know so there, there was quite a bit of desperation in the early days so i still vividly remember the first board meeting we had which was about 18 months into the business setup where for the first time we weren't talking about who we were going to try and push back from paying ourselves because you know cash flow was still it was so tight and that first board meeting where we actually had enough in the bank we managed to convince one of our big clients to pay for some license fees and some services because we were kind of sub-licensing some some other technology and we convinced one of our clients to to pay us for three years up front and that that was uh, an amazing and and it, it just was an immense game changer and all of a sudden we had we could breathe and kind of go right now let's look at this a little bit more strategically etc um, so, uh, so yeah, that, that was a that was a rather significant moment. Did you have to give them personal guarantees for that? Because uh, they, we they didn't, we didn't. But you know what? The the chap um, who, who actually bought from us, he said, he told us in later years that he's not quite sure how we got it through the governance in his own business because uh, you know we we had the the name of, of our company. Our, our head office was still my 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 house, my spare bedroom. But I called the house Energy House and then my address. Yeah. And so when they were doing the due diligence and then he rang me up and he said, we've put in your, your company address, but it looks like it's a home. And uh, uh, yes, yes, that's, that's, that's actually right. Yeah. <laughs> but you know, you, you do what you need to do. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Um, Energy House, that's a great idea. I know somebody on this call used to work from an office called London House as well. These well, are there you go. quite impressive. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's all, all uh, smoke and mirrors sometimes, isn't it? But uh, but uh, why not? Now, putting now, one's best foot forward, Derek, I think is, is quite important. No, no. You know, the, uh, Absolutely. You better, you better give us, uh, come back sometime, Ken, and uh, give us one of your presentations, how you persuade people to, uh, to do this. Um, now, I want to turn to... Um, a different subject. You uh, visit. You were invited by Sir Richard Branson to visit Necker Island. How did you manage uh, to get an invite to <laughs> that? And what was it like? And what's he like? Um, 
Well, it's probably a little stretch to say I was invited to the island by Richard Branson. Uh, we, we were doing little bits of work. We've done work with uh, various parts of the Virgin Group over the years. Um, and, and one thing we were asked to do as a business was to, to look at all of the properties within the, the, um, the, the Virgin, um, the, the special edition, the Virgin edition uh, buildings, which are mostly, mostly hotels, but include uh, Necker Island. Um, and, and what we were looking, what we were asked to do was to, to kind of do energy audits on, on each of the properties, including Necker Island. Uh, and specifically for Necker Island then, we were asked to, to see, did they need another wind turbine? They had three wind turbines installed on the island and a bunch of solar as well. Um, and they also had a couple of, of uh, diesel generators providing you know, uh, backup and, um, and, and a lot of the energy whilst there was a lot of construction going on. So, um, so we were asked to go down and, uh, and, and install some of our technology. We've got some internet, IoT, internet of things, technology, sensors, which pick up, you know, both electricity and gas usage, as well as you know, temperature, humidity, movement in buildings, all sorts of stuff. Hang on a minute, bit more jargon. We've got to clarify there. What's an IoT? IoT, so Internet of Things. So, so basically, just sensors. You know, okay. so 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 little sensors, little battery wireless sensors that we can pop anywhere and uh, connect them to a like a, a Wi-Fi hub, um, and uh, and and so we we install those around the globe and and including down on Necker. So. Uh, so an engineer had to go down there, and 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 I went as well. Um, oh, you had to, really, of course. <laughs> yeah, because you know it's always better to have two. Um, <laughs> so uh, you know, I mean, my background is mechanical engineering, and so, so I was, but I was useful down there. But my main reason to go was because I knew that Richard was going to be down there, so Richard Branson, um, who's been one of my heroes for years. You know, I've loved reading all his books. Uh, I love his approach to business, which is, you know, uh, I mean, the name of his seminal book, "Screw It, Let's Do It." You know, or just do it um and uh so you know i got a chance to sit down with him only for about half an hour we were there for a few days i sat down with him for half an hour he was he was amazing you know really insightful very very sharp you know really really sharp we talked about a variety of different things you know kind of global carbon what are the solutions to global carbon uh we talked about you know the problems of aviation obviously virgin atlantic is a big part of his portfolio um and, and yeah, just, just how we could potentially solve this, you know, kind of global challenge. And, uh, and then he was very, very kind afterwards. He, he put me in touch with a, a collection of people across his different businesses um, and, and conversations are, are still going from on the back of that. So, um, so yeah, uh, I was very blessed. He was a lovely man, a, a really lovely, genuine, sharp, you know, very sharp, very fit as well. I mean, I saw him there playing tennis multiple times a day, each of the days I was there. So, um, yeah, I'm a big, I'm a big Richard Branson fan. Uh, don't forget everybody to put any short, sharp, uh, specific questions in the chat box for Ken. Um, Ken, the last thing I wanted to ask you was 155 people and you told me you're very selective on how you pick people. Tell me about your strategy yeah. for uh, employing people. Um, so we figured out when we were about, I think we were about 30 or 40 strong. So it's a few years ago now. Um, and we realized that we had a number of people join us who then we asked to leave or moved on before their, 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 their kind of, you know, initial probation period was over. Um, and for a business with, you know, 20, 30 people, that's, it's really painful and it's very effortful and, and it's very time consuming to, you know, bring people in, train them up, 
introduce them to clients and then not continue with them working for us and, and with us. Mm. Um, so so we, we kind of scratched our heads a, a little bit and I kind of looked around. I, I'm a big fan of, you know, not trying to, to, to solve everything from first principles and, and, you know, try and stand on the shoulders of others. Um, so, so I found a book called Hiring for Attitude, um, which seemed to have uh, a lot of the answers. Um, and so we, we tried it. And, and actually that was combined also with, we, we looked at our own values as a business um, because I, I found fairly early on, I found a great uh, bit of research that showed professional services, businesses that had survived through the decades versus those that didn't. And, and the single biggest differentiating factor was value and culture. And, and so, so we kind of had a, a revisit of our own values and, and our own culture and just made sure that we were then combining that with the hiring for attitude. So hiring and firing against our own values. So the values weren't just, you know, a few fancy words on, on a cup or, or on our website, but were actually things that we were living and breathing, you know? And so the hiring for attitudes fairly, I suppose, simplistically, um, we found um, was looking at the, the essence of, you know, by the time anyone gets to an interview, they ought to have the, either the kind of the historical experience or the educational capacity or whatever to do the job that you're asking them to do, yeah? Now, they may need some kind of specific, you know, education and training in your own ways of doing your own processes and et cetera, et cetera. But the biggest thing that this book kind of taught us was that you can teach somebody technical skills, but it's nigh on impossible to change someone's attitude and so, so we ended up devising, and we did this with the whole business. You know, we, we looked at, you know, our, our best performing people, and we looked at why they were our best performing people. What were the attitudinal traits of our best performing people? And then could we distill those traits into questions? And, and the book really helped as well with, you know, getting questions that were discriminatory questions, i.e. by the way people answered the questions, it ought to be fairly easy to see were they likely to succeed with us or not. Could we discriminate, you know, positively for people that were likely to succeed and against people who are less likely to succeed with us, you know? And I know that discrimination is, is often a word that's like thought to be an awful word these days, but you know, it's essential when you're, when you're hiring someone because hiring someone that doesn't work out is really bad for the person themselves as well as, you know, the, the business. And so, you know, I'm on a, a bit of a one-man mission to try and kind of, you know, maybe communicate with people that are, or to let our people here know that, you know, we all judge and we all need to discriminate, you know, in ways that lead to better outcomes um, or, or, or else we will end up with very ineffective organizations, you know, um, so, uh, so, so yeah, that, that's, that, that's what we did. And, and then it makes it really, really easy because it also then feeds in beautifully to the whole diversity because it really doesn't matter, you know, whether, whether someone is, you know, from a particular background or not, a particular race or not, a particular sexual orientation or not. It's down to, do they have what we think it will take from an education or experience point of view? Yes, no. And then do they adhere to our attitudes and values? Yes, no. And if the answers to those are yes, then it's great, you know. And so we ended up, we, we, we did a, we ran a little um, exercise here in our business, you know, on diversity. And, uh, and we found, not to our surprise, but, you know, we have twice the number of, 
of kind of diversity, you know, people working here than the average in our industry. But that's just because we, we pick people based on their own merits, you know. Absolutely. That really sounds um, absolutely right. And did you um, did you interview everybody yourself or did you delegate that? Uh, in the early days, I, I interviewed everyone myself. Um, in, in later days, and, and certainly now, not not even close. Did the statistics check out with your gut feel? I guess you must have a really good gut feel and sense for things. Uh, the statistics in terms of people actually being successful in the roles post. Yeah, the people that were put in front of you uh, having uh, modelled your highest achievers and then checking whether these people came out against your high achievers with those traits. Um, yes. Did when you actually met them eyeball to eyeball and asked them a few white knuckle questions, did um, did that check out? Yeah, absolutely. So so for for a while, I did all of the values interviews, and then only if people passed the values interviews would I then pass them over for the kind of the technical interviews. Okay. Um, and 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 that made it that made a huge difference. I mean, we are, are the, the numbers of people who did not then progress through the um, through through the probationary periods went to almost zero for a good few years you know so um and because we we had a reasonable benchmark upon which to say yes or no to people you know and and, and that that worked you know so two quick questions in the chat box before i yeah. uh, stop the recording but um can it will you stay on uh, for when i stop the recording because there's a few other questions there's a lot of questions so the first question sure. is from martin martin uh, says that my negotiating model requires pre-selection of best position, target position, and walk away position, what we talked about when we had coffee. What was uh, your best position, target position, walk away when you went for the uh, three years up front money? Was that your best position or did you ask for five? No, we, it was just, it was, it was a three year contract. Um, we, it was a three-year contract. We requested, we gave them two options. We gave them a, you can pay this amount. So we gave them a reasonable discount to, to pay three years up front. Um, and I guess they had enough cash in the bank as a business and, uh, and, and they said, yes. So, um, I, I mean, it, it'd be a bit trite to say it wasn't that hard, but it wasn't that hard, you know? Um, and I guess an awful lot of, you know, Sales, in my experience, you know, because I started life as, as not a salesperson at all. Um, and after my first business, which was in the dot-com era, you know, when, when I finished that, I realized that probably the main skill I didn't have was the, the skill to be able to go in and sell and close a sale. So, uh, so I spent a year or two kind of absorbing all sorts of sales and negotiation type, you know, material and, and at tapes in the car when there used to be tapes in the car of Zig Ziglar and all sorts of people of, of doing kind of sales yeah oh yeah it was it was wonderful you know um and I, I think what I learned from all of that was that you know people want to be sold to you know sales is often considered in this part of the world not so much in the states and Canada where I spent some time as well but uh you know here you know UK Ireland um you know sales is often a bit of a oh you can't really sell to people but actually people want to be sold too they they want to be brought through a a sales process to a successful conclusion where it is a win-win you know um 
and where they feel that their questions have been answered and where they've got confidence that the solution they bought is going to deliver them the benefits that they that they that they hope for you know um and so you know with, with that three-year deal you know we were we we had enough of a track record to show that we could do it you know um we we were solid enough as a business in fact we weren't really solid enough as a business but i guess we, we managed to make that somehow you know okay um and we gave them a good enough deal you know on the uh on the three year versus one year that um, that they were able to say yes. Fantastic, Ken. Uh, we're almost at the end of the interview. As a former banker with some bankers on the call, um, you are actually a banking nightmare when you come when you come for finance uh, at the early stages here. And then I guess as yeah. you get more and more successful, everybody wants your business. So that's the way banking works. But uh, yeah. but yeah. Ken, can I thank you for coming on behalf of everybody? Can I ask everybody to give you the usual Monday night live round of applause, which is in the gallery view? Um, can I ask you to stay on and answer some questions and perhaps even come back in a few months' time uh, when we've got some even more questions and uh, just join us and have a bit of fun and uh, we'll, um, I'll be buying you some more coffee and Starbucks in Guildford. So, uh, Very kind. Yeah. And Ken, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, how do they do that to ask you any questions by email, etc.? Uh, either my my company email, which is kian.duggan, yep. so first name dot last name at carbon.ci. So carbon, C-A-R-B-O-N.ci, short for carbon intelligence. Um, or my personal one is just kian.duggan at gmail.com. Um, I, I, either or both of those are easy ways to get me. Brilliant, Kian. Kian Duggan, thanks for joining Monday Night Live.